We've complained to the police about the police and nothing's been done. We've complained to magistrates about magistrates and nothing's been done. We've complained to judges about judges and nothing's been done. Now it's time to do something ourselves. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 83 of the History Hotline. Now, you might remember that introduction from the first ever episode if you listen to it. Um, or if you've been here since the first episode dropped. Um, but we're going to come back to why I've used that intro again today, later. Um, but before we do, let me get into some housekeeping for today. Now, it's been a minute since I was last here recording, putting out episodes. We've had quite a significant break. Um, thank you all for bearing with me. Um, we are now back. Episodes will be out every Tuesday. Um, I think the last few episodes before the break were on Tuesdays, um, but we'll be continuing with that. It feels weird to switch. It's always been Monday, but it's going to be Tuesday from now on. It just works better with my schedule. Um, I'm now a PhD student, funnily enough, um, and will be you know, using all my time and energy to continue my research in an academic environment, which I'm quite excited about. Um, it will mean my schedule will be different um, and I think a little bit more demanding in some ways. So for now, episodes will be weekly, um, but they may drop down to fortnightly um, in the upcoming near or distant future or might they might not at all. And um, we'll see how things go. Um, but I'll do an episode one day about my PhD and what it's all about. But there is an episode, I think, that my PhD is loosely based upon. Um, I put it out when I was doing my proposal and so it kind of forms some of my original ideas for my research, which broadly looks at the um, British colonial education system in the Caribbean and the experiences of West Indian children um, in that system, migrating to Britain and then experiencing the British education system here. Um, and some of the challenges they face, the differences between the two systems and things of that nature. So it's a history of migration, of childhood, of race, of education and kind of all the themes that I've really enjoyed speaking about on this podcast over the past few years. Now, a lot has happened since I last recorded. Um, we've got a new prime minister. We have a new monarch. Heat and bills are higher. The weather is colder. Um, the UK is a very interesting place um, and a lot of things have happened and I've wanted to jump on the podcast and talk about them, but I've kind of restrained myself. Um, so in the next few episodes, you know, we might be pulling up things that have happened, issues, problems, um, and breaking them down and adding historical context, as I like to do on this podcast, as well as the usual episodes that will be coming out about, you know, individuals or events or moments um, within Black British and Caribbean history. Now, it's Black History Month. This episode will be coming out in October. And interestingly enough, I normally do an episode about some of the problems I encounter in Black History Month. I don't think I'm going to do that this year. I think the same issues stand. Um, and last year's episode and the episode from the year before, um, you know, about what is Black History Month, what's the point of it, um, why do we celebrate it? Why do people not want to pay, pay black creators to create content or research about black history um, in this time? You know, all the same issues apply. They apply every year. They'll probably apply every single year in the future until maybe we no longer need a black history month. Um, Wales are making changes to their curriculum. England are not following suit. But maybe things will change in the future. 
Now, today's episode is going to be about um, Black Lives Matter in the UK, Chris Caber, um, and police brutality a little bit more widely. Um, because I think at the moment we're in a time where different conversations about police brutality are coming up. Um, I think since last recording, there have been several cases of police brutality in this country um, that have just been equally as shocking. Shocking not in a way of, oh, you know, we're not used to this, we've never seen this before, because we have historically and in contemporary times here and in America and other countries in the world. Um, But shocking in the kind of ways that the media... Um, continue to kind of peddle series of lies and mistruths and falsehoods about individuals that are victims of police brutality in order to change the narrative um, and kind of set them out to be perpetrators of of kind of crimes that justify their murder. Now, this episode will be in six parts. We're going to start with Black Lives Matter in the US, its origins of the phrase and of the movement. We're going to look at how that developed um, across the last nine years. Then we're going to look at Black Lives Matter um, as a movement in Britain. And, you know, was it piggybacking off the US and what it looks like as an organisation in the UK or as several organisations? We're then going to look at a brief history of some of the organisations that have fought for race-based, fought against race-based discrimination in the UK historically and then in kind of the final part of this episode we'll look at the case of Chris Caber um, and his experience and um, what happened to him and the kind of campaigns are ongoing um, to seek justice for his family at this time. Now I started this episode with the same introduction to the Mangrove 9 episode that I did as a first ever episode um, and it's Althea Jones of Coint saying, you know, we've complained to the police about the police and nothing's been done. We've complained to the magistrates about the magistrates and nothing's been done. And we've complained to the judges about the judges and nothing's been done. And I just feel like that kind of quote, I always hear it at times when things happen in this country. It's just so poignant. Um, and I think when we think about an organisation um, like Black Lives Matter in the US and then the kind of movement that follows in the UK in more recent times, um, that is exactly kind of why movements like this start because um, as a group in society, as communities, as marginalised groups of people, um, you know, the systems that are there to, shall we say, protect and serve um, the mainstream of people um, are not doing that when it comes to marginalised groups. Um, and so the police being the kind of group in question at the moment under a new Met Commissioner, um, we are speaking about London and the London Metropolitan Police, as always. Um, you know, they really do take it to a next level when it comes um, to their policing issues. And, yeah, so thinking about Black Lives Matter then, um, in the US and its origins, it was founded in 2013 um, in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's um, murderer, um, George Zimmerman, who claimed self-defence, um, even though he shot him in the back. Now, officially, um, Black Lives Matter as an organisation is called Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, Incorporated, um, and there is a global element to it in the US, UK and Canada, um, and their mission, taken from their website, and I quote, is to eradicate white supremacy, build local power, 
and to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes by combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives. Um, and that's kind of the statement they have on the website. Alongside other things, um, they, you know, affirm the lives of black queer and trans people, disabled people, undocumented people, um, women, um, black lives along the gender spectrum. Um, and they're all quotes taken from um, their website as well. And so I don't want to spend too long thinking about the US, but there was a time, and I think 2013 was kind of the beginning of what felt like a good five plus year kind of segment if that's the right word of just really hyper visible police brutality um it was making headlines even in the UK um which wasn't the case it's not to say that you know there was no police brutality there were no black people especially black men being murdered um before this they were it's just uh, I think the stories were being taken up more and I think with the rise in kind of social media and people having camera phones on them and access to the internet at literally a click of a button um this stuff was becoming way more visible to us over social media and, and in mainstream media as well because mainstream media tends to pick up what is trending on social media um and that they kind of influence each other in that way um so this all starts in the U.S. Um, in the UK, things don't kick off until a little bit later. It's not until 2015 um, that we start to see movements under the same name um, coming up. Now, when it comes to BLM in the UK, it's not they're non-partisan, um, apolitical parties. They don't align with any kind of like political organisation or group. Um, they don't necessarily put themselves in any point on the kind of political spectrum left or right um however uk black lives matter and then there's black lives matter uk now this sounds really confusing i was doing some quite in-depth research now about the organizations and what they're called and what they stand for and if there's any difference in them but it seems as if there's um one group that in their logo and kind of their website domain name is uk blm and another that's BLM UK. So I'm going to talk about them differently. UK BLM is the kind of the bigger group. Um, they're the group you might have seen in headlines this week, giving out a second um, kind of phase of funding, £350,000 to be exact, from money raised during the 2020 resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the US. And, you know, obviously the trickle down impact that had in the UK, especially thinking about some of the inequalities that were happening during COVID, um, as well as, of course, the murder of George Floyd. Now, so UK BLM that have all the money um, or had all the money and are sharing it out now, um, they on their um, website state they're not a Marxist organisation. Some members might be Marxist, not all members are, and they are all anti-capitalist so in that sense they do align on the kind of political spectrum um they are committed to dismantling class as well as gender and race domination um and interestingly enough i think they have a bigger kind of voice in the media they don't um have necessarily a face and i think that's very important for the organization i think in the u.s there's more of a face to it and there's also with that now questions about how money's being spent in the US that is um in regards to funds that were raised um for Black Lives Matter there in the UK it's a little bit different so some of the members are public facing others are not 
Um, they've said that they have personal responsibilities, they have families, children, jobs, and a lot of them will face hostility from far-right groups um, and the right-wing press, including harassment, um, they've said. So a lot of them prioritise their safety um, and don't necessarily put a face um, to the work that they do under this um, under this organisation, under this movement. Um, I think it's important that they remain this way um, because we often really go for these leading figures, these normally men, who lead these movements and when you know something happens to them the movements go with them unfortunately and it's happened so many times um not just in the UK um but in the US probably more prolifically um but i think it's important to have these organizations that can live on beyond any person um because it means that the work can continue without it being associated to to an individual but i think within society today there's kind of a hyperfixation on on people and on this person having founded this thing and done that thing and ticked that box and checked that list. And I don't think it is so important. So it's quite interesting that that's kind of how they align themselves. And whilst they have members of the group that, you know, have public platforms and they all work in different areas as well, um, kind of different spheres and different um, kind of fields work-wise, um, they also have members that we don't know anything about. Um, and that's okay as well, because it's just not really necessary for them to do the work that they need to do. Um, they did an, a Q&A with the Voice newspaper, um, and one of the questions that I kind of wanted to pick out and share was, um, does BLM, even though it's a non-partisan group, does it ever work with politicians? Um, and one of the members who made her name available, Lorna, she said, and I quote, I'm going to answer for myself on this one. I think to build an anti-racist movement, you need lots of players. People in different roles, people with different positions. And sometimes those people are going to be people who are in Parliament. Sometimes you're actually going to need political parties in order to fight for specific rights and that affect black communities. For example, whether the National Health Service is funded or not is really impacted by who is in power. What's happening at a local level, for example, sister space, being able to access or not access appropriate space in which to support domestic violence survivors is depending on what's happening at a local council level. So I don't think we shy away from the fact that party politics has an impact on black communities, but I think we have to be really careful and be really strategic about the ways that we as an organisation could be used. Ultimately, we don't believe that black liberation will come through a political party, but just to reiterate, I think they probably will require lots of different agents of change to bring about the kind of world we want to live in. Now, the organisation in the UK have made headlines recently because they've announced to give £350,000 worth of funding to grassroots organisations, which are campaigning to further race equality across a number of fields um, within the UK. Now, this is following... Money that was donated essentially in 2020 when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening um, in the UK. There was £1.2 million raised from about 36,300 donors. Um, and in this initial kind of phase of like giving out the money, um, they gave money to groups such as Sister Space, United Friends and Family Campaign and Justice for Black Lives. Both of them received 170000 Um and I think they were kind of dealing with pressing issues at that moment. In that moment, Sister Space were faced with um, 
being evicted from the building that they used um, due to the funding they had um, kind of bailing out, pulling out um, and them not being able to fund um, the space that they had. But the space was so integral to them. It was providing support for um, people, women that had suffered from domestic um, violence and it was um, helping them deal with that, black women um, in particular. Um, And I remember, I think on this podcast, actually, there was an episode where I kind of pointed you in the direction of donating. Um, So all that money went to to Sister Space, and they were able to kind of um, stay in in the building and in the location that they're in in Hackney. Um, So this is the second round of funding now, um, and it's kind of not looking at kind of the pressing issues that you know people were really desperately needing the money now and then um and it's looking at elevating black arts and culture education um looking at working towards ending the hostile environment and looking at border control policies um and they've said there'll be a third round to follow um because obviously 1.2 million was donated and it hasn't all been handed out now the process in doing this has been quite transparent there's always a lot of critique when people deal with big sums of money, where's it going, who's getting it, who decides where it's been handed out to. They've had consultants that have consulted um, with them and looked at the applications made by people to to access this money. Um, and so it seems everything has been um, done, done properly. Um, and I believe they are going to be opening up in the kind of third round to some groups that might need it from overseas so helping people outside of um, Britain whilst the first two rounds have just been for people um, within Britain Um, and that's been really nice to see that you know there's actually a continuing positive impact from what happened in 2020 um, because we can kind of look back at that now um, with two years distance um, and kind of think about the impact that it might have had in Different workplaces, different fields, um, different areas. In terms of policing, it seems to have had no change because even as I record this episode, I took a break a second ago to to scroll on Twitter um, and an unnamed man, I believe, has been killed in police custody and he's like the second one this month of um, black men dying um, at the hands of the police. Um, So it kind of seems as if everybody's learning except for them, even with the new Met Commissioner. Um, it's the same things that are happening. Um, people are still dying um, in police custody at the hands of the police in a variety of different ways. Um, and yeah, things don't seem to be changing too much on that front. Now, on the flip side of the one BLM group, we've got another BLM group. Um, and it is a bit confusing. Them having obviously the same name and, it, you know, it's such a slogan. It's so, it's, but it's been controversial to some, not to others, not to me. Um, it is, you know, it makes a statement, doesn't it? Black Lives Matter, um, because they hadn't been mattering in in the mainstream, in society, in a whole range of fields and arenas. Um, and so there's the other group then, um, who I'm going to refer to as BLM UK as opposed to UK BLM. Um, and they are a, and I quote from their website, uh, we stand together as a civil, social civil rights movement in solidarity in the UK and across the globe to change the world. We kneel together for peace and unity, asserting Black Lives Matter and that black people are treated as humanly and as and fairly as white people. It is a human right to receive racial equality, social and criminal justice in the societies where we live and to receive parity as full citizens of the country and as a nation. Um, they're also a political, um, non-political, non-partisan and a non-violence platform. Um, 
and that is the kind of overview of them I think in terms of like money and that kind of thing um they haven't really received the kind of funds on a level as UK BLM and so um there isn't really much to discuss in terms of that although I will say and it will lead us into our kind of next point about the fact that they have kind of been quite vocal in their campaign um for Chris Cabot and for justice to be served after his murder um they are they make it very clear and and I think quote to do to avoid confusion um and for definite clarity we blacklivesmatter.uk are not affiliated or associated with BLM US Canada UK chapters and uh, political organizations um operating and registered as the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation Incorporated who I mentioned before um they're not affiliated with UK BLM either and I say at UK BLM because I think that's their like social media handles whereas the other ones are like BLM UK or Black Lives Matter UK um but on their website they've got a lot of information their website is very informative there's links to like different campaigns happening different issues happening links to different social media platforms where people are speaking about certain topics that are relevant within racial equality and social justice um so again they they play an important role in that um and especially when it comes right now um to justice being sought out for the family of Chris Cabot justice won't be done because you know he's lost his life and they'll never have their son back their cousin back their nephew back you know their friend back but um to get justice and to see a conviction for this police officer that has murdered um Chris in his car um that is kind of what the campaign is is seeking to do now and at different stages of the campaign this all happened um at the start of September so we're kind of a month in um to this kind of movement to seek justice and you know as kind of things have been uncovered and things have changed they've obviously put out demands for different things and that started with you know having body camera footage it started with knowing what actually happened and then it's kind of developed into you know having once known what has happened justice for the family justice for chris um have the the name released of the officer that did that they've only got like i think it's a badge number um we'll get into to chris cabber and that story shortly but i kind of wanted to just contextualize both of these groups in a longer history of organizations fighting race-based discrimination in the uk um I did say before it's important that we don't just just focus on the kind of individuals that do this, but the actual groups that work to do this. And I will say some of the groups I'm going to mention, I've done episodes on and I'll signpost them if I have. But there are a few I haven't and will be doing in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for them, because the more I think about it, the more I move away from the kind of focus on, on individuals. And think it's important that we actually focus on the kind of grassroots community based organisations that do the work. Um, often without the reward of being a figure or a face, if that makes sense. It's easy to kind of lord praise onto a person and less so to lord praise onto a kind of a whole group. Um, and I think that it often shows historically um, because there are a lot of groups where you could mention a name, um, the name of the organisation, but maybe not the names of people involved. And sometimes it should be that way. Other times, maybe not so much, but... Um, that's the kind of case when we think about some of these movements in Britain's history. This is not an exhaustive list. Please don't take this as the only groups that have ever done anything um, to work against um, systemic and societal racism um, in Britain. That's definitely not the case, but these are probably some of the 
the kind of most well-known. Um, so we'll start with the League of Coloured Peoples, um, which was kind of founded in 1931, so pre-Windrush, um, and the kind of waves we saw in the post-war era. Um, it was founded by Harold Moody, who was a Jamaican-born physician, campaigner, and he's due an episode, actually. I know I just said I'm not going to focus on people so much, but Harold Moody and his family, more broadly, actually, the Moody's... Um, contributed so much to um the kind of interwar years that i don't think i've ever done an episode on no i have that's not true um but i should do more about this kind of um early 20th century the kind of time between world war one and world war two um but yeah howard moody and his family were doing a lot in that time um the focus was black rights but more so in the field of um jobs he qualified um, as a doctor from King's College, London, and was denied work in pretty much all the practices he tried and ended up having to set up his own. Um, so that's kind of part of his story and, and the reasons for um, the League of Coloured Peoples. Um, it kind of dissolved around the 1950s, um, which is interesting. Um, I haven't ever done research into why. Um, but that's kind of the Windrush era and I wonder if that had anything to do with it um, and maybe a, a movement that was um, more radical in some ways might have been needed um, at that point. That's just me speculating. I don't know that for sure. Um, but then we have the Black Panther movement, um, which episode seven is all about. They were inspired by the US Black Panther Party, which is quite similar to the story with um the US Black Lives Matter and then the UK Black Lives Matter movements. Um, they were unaffiliated with them, but obviously influenced and inspired by them. The movement started in 1968. Um, they adopted principles of political blackness, which meant they had activists that were black of the African diaspora um, from either Africa, the Caribbean, um, and then also they had people of South Asian origin, um, it lasted until the early 1970s, supporting black and Asian people in Britain through left-wing politics, um, and they worked to fight against police harassment and brutality, especially in the case of the Mangrove Nine, which obviously episode one is all about, and the clip that we started this episode is all about. It's all coming together, full circle. Um, the next group is important to talk about, I think, is the Black Liberation Front, um, and episode on them is definitely overdue. Um, they were founded in 1971. Um, they had a significant impact on the political landscape, um, the black British political landscape, and played a key role in the black community in London, um, primarily, but elsewhere as well. Um, they developed links with liberation struggles globally, so in Africa, throughout the African diaspora, and regularly organised um, the annual Africa Liberation Day celebrations in cooperation with other organisations in Britain. So they worked together quite well with others, um, thinking about the liberation of Africa um, especially. They established supplementary schools, community bookshops, affordable housing for black families. They supported black prisoners and the movement um, focused on developing a pan-African consciousness, consolidating black political identity and challenging the impact of racism in Britain um, across a number of fields, as you can, as you can hear from the list um, mentioned. There was also the Black Parents Movement, um, they were an organisation of black people, mainly Caribbean and African descent in Britain, and they existed to kind of defend and advance the interests of, of black people, especially the working class and the unemployed. Um, 
in the title, Black Parents Movement, you're probably thinking, okay, their parents, they've got children. They did um, start as a black education movement. It's kind of an extension of that. Um, in the 1970s, mid-1970s, most active until the mid-1980s, um, beginning with issues on education and the school system, obviously important to me in my research. Um, and they worked across areas such as policing, housing and unemployment. Um, so again, another important group that an episode has not been done on, but is needed. And then the next two groups are both groups that episodes have been done on and they worked to actually aim um, to help black women in Britain. Um, so the Brixton Black Women's Group, episode 67 is all about that. Um, and it's an organisation for black women in Brixton. Um, and it was one of the first black women's group in the UK. They existed from about 73 to about 1985. Um, a socialist feminist group um, trying to raise consciousness and organise around issues specifically affecting black women. Members had previously been active in the movements gone before such as um the black panther movement um and needed a space to kind of work on the liberation of black women um outside of organizations that just focused on the liberation of black men um even though that's not what they were specifically for um and then last but not least oad the organization of women of african and asian descent episode 25 is all about that and that was an activist organization for british black and asian women or well, not just british black and asian women but black and asian women from the african diaspora also coming from um, south asia um, established in 1978 um, and some of the founding members came out of some of the groups already mentioned um, it was a broadly socialist, non-hierarchical um, national umbrella organisation and obviously I've spoken a lot about this this group and some of the members in it um, in the past. Um, they also published a book looking at the experiences of black and Asian women in Britain in different fields, in different sectors, um, in different parts of their lives, so employment, housing, healthcare, education, that kind of thing. So here we have like just a, a brief rundown of some of the groups that have kind of gone before. Um, we get to like the mid 2000s and have a group like Black Lives Matter um, working in the UK. Now, all of this kind of nothing happens in a vacuum. Um, racial equality, black liberation, it all kind of follows on from the group or the movement that's gone before. And I think right now, whilst we're in an era where Black Lives Matter is kind of what's being spoken about, um, it, it makes the news, it's the kind of organisations that are trying to help people and alleviate some of the issues black people are facing in this country. Um, you know, it's it's never the only group. Um, and even some of the money that they um, give to other groups and the other groups that they're, they're giving their money to are working specifically within some of the smaller issues um, that, that face black people here. So it's just interesting to kind of see these longer histories and that like nothing happens, you know, of in and of itself um, when it comes to, to um, race equality, especially in this country. And now on to our sixth and final segment of this episode of the podcast, thinking about Chris Cabber, who was driving um, a car, an Audi, on the 5th of September this year, 2022, in South London, um, the car was said to be linked to a firearms incident which took place the previous day. There was an automatic number plate recognition, which is an ANPR marker, that had been placed upon the car. Um, Chris Caber was not linked to that. His name was not named in regards to the firearms offence. Um, he was just driving the car 
and when the police spotted this car they followed him in an unmarked vehicle there were no lights and it was an armed response vehicle um they followed him from about 9:52 till around 10:07 um they did not activate their lights officers did not you know sound the sirens or the lights the intention was to use an enforced stop extraction on the Audi which they did that statement and the words I read was put out by the IOPC, the Independent Office for Police Conduct, um, and that statement has only come out in the last week. Um, it was what the family were calling for, um, because obviously the police um, investigate the police, you know. You can't call the police on the police, but it is the police that tend to do that, so they wanted an independent body to do that, which they have done, and these are the findings um, which I just read. However, in the process of this coming out, there were so many misinformations and, f and lies essentially said about this case, and I think it's done deliberately to tarnish the reputation of the victim, to suggest that it's somehow justified that they lost their lives at the hands of the police, and it's a similar pattern that I've seen happen historically um, with victims of police brutality. Um, Jean-Charles de Menendez was um, said to have vaulted ticket barriers um, when he was killed, um, which was later confirmed to be untrue. Mark Duggan was said to be armed and shooting at police. That was confirmed to be untrue. Ian Tomlinson um, was said to have collapsed um, in his case. That was said to be untrue. Sheku, um, Sheku Boya... He was said to have stamped on police officers, um, which later was found to be untrue. Um, and in the case of Dalian Atkinson, which is kind of one of the only, the first time in 30 years that a British police officer has been convicted of manslaughter in the course of their duties, Benjamin Monk, PC Benjamin Monk, or it's not PC anymore, um, was found guilty of that. Um, this happened to former Aston Villa player um, just in Birmingham, and it's taken them years to get that justice and um, that case only went to trial and that part of the trial only kind of wrapped up I believe last year or the year before um, but you know interestingly from that inquest and this is what I wanted to take out Deborah Coles said we have seen in this trial use of racial stereotypes equating black people with dangerousness and criminality Language used by police when challenged to defend their actions reproduces the very myths and racial stereotypes that legitimise slavery with reference to superhuman strength and unpredictability to legitimise violence and deadly policing. In all the cases I mentioned, those stereotypes were pushed out. Um, superhuman strength, unpredictable behaviour, um, whether they're having a mental health crisis or not, they're said to be a threat, a physical threat that needs lethal force to you know remove that threat and that's exactly what's happened um, in the case of Chris Cabber and this lie that he allegedly was being chased by the police and he was aware he was being chased and he didn't stop he refused to stop when actually um you know he wasn't aware because they didn't ha identify themselves as police they didn't shine their lights they didn't you know sound the sirens um he was in an unmarked police car he was not trying to evade being caught he did not know that the police were, were behind him and following him for a significant amount of time now. When I drive home and I recognise a registration plate that seems to be behind me, following every move that I'm doing um, for a significant period of time, I would feel uncomfortable, um, let alone this happening, you know, for, for a long period of time through South East London. Um, 
you know, this has been rectified with this independent um, police conduct inquiry and this statement. But like the U-turn is and the apology, they're never as loud as the original accusation. Um, so despite, you know, the findings, he's still going to be portrayed as someone that tried to evade the police. You can see it in, in people's comments, in people's responses. Oh, well, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, just stop when the police stop you. But it wasn't that, that's not what happened. Um, and these narratives are very damaging. Um, and, you know, it means that, you know, it's harder to seek out justice because there's a lie being pushed out about you. Um, and about, you know, your family member in this case, for the family of, of Chris Cabber. And, you know, I've given examples of where this has happened again and again. Um, and whilst in the case of Dalian Atkinson, um, Benjamin Monk was found guilty and convicted. Um, Mary Ellen Betley Smith, who actually beat Atkinson and Dalian Atkinson, that is, with a baton, um, he was kicked um, by Benjamin Monk. Um, the other officer used a baton. Um, to exert force and she was actually acquitted um and in September this year so whilst there was justice you know for that one officer and for Dalian's family in that sense there wasn't in another sense and it seems to be the case always it's like you make one step of progress and another two steps back so we will kind of continue to follow this case of Chris Cabber and, and what happens and you know hope for justice for his family but I think because it happened during the time that Queen Elizabeth passed away or just before, um, you know, this story, the Queen's passing obviously took up a lot of media coverage. And so this definitely got pushed down um, and it got silenced quite quickly. And I think a lot of noise needs to be made about it. And it's why I'm making this episode about it. This wasn't the plan for today's episode, actually. I had another plan, um, but you'll get that episode next week or the week after. Um, but I think it's it's quite insidious that this is kind of being silenced and um pushed down in the in terms of the media anyway and and what we speak about and whilst obviously there's a lot of things that can't be said because there's things that haven't been released like body camera evidence and footage and names of officers that were involved um at the end of the day there's a man who you know no longer has his life and justice needs to be done about that and I hope that in the near future um something something will be done and cases like this won't happen anymore but it's just so difficult when you know as I mentioned earlier you know in the process of literally recording this episode and doing the research and writing the script for this episode um another two people have died after contact with the police in custody um two other black men and it just feels like it's never ending I really didn't intend for this episode um to be so heavy um I am very conscious of the kind of research that I do now because it really does take a toll on you mentally um to be recording such heavy episodes week in week out um and it's part of the reason I had such a long break as well actually I had a break from all kinds of history I didn't do anything historical really in the time um just reading historical fiction just to keep my mind going but yeah nothing of this nature um but it's important to think about and it's important to to speak up about these things otherwise they do get pushed under the rug so here we are now I hope you have enjoyed this episode I hope you've taken something from it I think we had quite a mixed bag there's something for everyone here and as this episode draws to a close please remember the words of Althea Jones LeCoin um which I'll leave you with We've complained to the police about the police and nothing's been done. We've complained to magistrates about magistrates and nothing's been done. We've complained to judges about judges and nothing's been done. 
Now it's time to do something ourselves. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.